Uh, good morning. Um, our text today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 13. If you need a Bible, we have some here and here. And two gentlemen, there we go, there they are, will jump up and get you one if you want one. Um, so, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It says, You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, good morning. We have been uh, singing to you. We have been lifting our hearts up to you. Some of us are cold and far away. Some of us are warm and very near. But, Father, we are all together here before your word. And so we open it to learn. We open it to learn what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We are, um, we are citizens of this nation, and now um, there's an awful lot of turmoil, an awful lot of uncertainty, an awful lot of strife and anger and backbiting and triumph and pride and all of it. But Father, we come now to consider our primary membership, our primary citizenship, that of the kingdom of God, sons and daughters of the most high king. And so we proclaim now that we love you. And we pray just as Jonathan did, that we would, our, our ears would be opened. And that as you begin to sow seeds of righteousness, that they would find good soil in our hearts for purchase. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Now we've been learning the New City Catechism together, as you know, for, I don't know, months, two, three, four months, I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> and we come today to the question, new question and a new answer, number 11. And we're going to see it and read it together, the question and the answer. So let us read, what does God require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? Sixth, that we do not hurt or hate, or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient and peaceful, pursuing even our enemies with love. Seventh, that we abstain from sexual immorality and live purely and faithfully, whether in marriage or in single life, avoiding all impure actions, looks, words, thoughts, or desires, and whatever might lead to them. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. Okay, <clears throat> today, as you heard from the reading of the text, we are considering the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. So what does God require in the sixth commandment? We'll shorten it the question and answer just to this. Sixth, that we do not hurt or hate or be hostile to our neighbor, but be patient, peaceful, and pursuing even our enemies with love. Now, according to the statistics that the FBI puts out, only a very, very, very small percentage of people in our population commit murder. About 1.2% of the American population is in federal or state prison because they have actually taken the life of another person. Now, we can assume maybe that some of those are wrongful convictions, but even so, it is still a very, very small 
portion of the population. So it seems like we should probably skip this command. We should probably just move right on and consider other things. Add to all that that there's no culture in the history of the world, no matter east or west, that does not agree that murder is among, if not the, worst sin possible. It doesn't matter if you're in Mesopotamia or in ancient Rome, Han China, Gupta India, Numidian Africa, or even today in among the world in our 196 recognized nation states, everybody agrees in the history of the world that this is the most heinous crime that you can commit against another person. So it seems like we all agree in all nations, in all ages, that murder is wrong and therefore to be, avo- therefore to be avoided. Um, some people um, do murder, we know this, um, but it's such a small percentage of the population and therefore not applicable to most of the people in our population. So why spend our time considering it today? Glad you asked. I've got two reasons. Number one, because the Bible's definition of murder is, is somewhat at odds with the state's definition of murder. The Bible's definition of murder is much broader than the state's, and so we need to think about this for a few minutes. And then finally, because this commandment teaches us on the positive side, how to love and how to care for our neighbor. Okay, so I want to look at this commandment under two headings. The first one, what does it mean? And then the second one, what are its implications? Easy. What does it mean? What are its implications? So first of all, what does it mean, you shall not murder? Well, negatively, it means don't kill another person. Okay, simple. Uh, Positively, it means that we must do all that we can to uphold and protect human life. And I want to look at this under three categories. We must do all that we can to uphold and protect human life in its beginnings, in its middle, and in its end. Beginning, middle, end. So in its beginnings. So um, I know some of us would prefer not to mention this, and I know some of us would prefer never to stop mentioning it. Um, But when the prohibition against murder is in front of us, it seems to me that it would be unfaithful to the text to begin anywhere else. The scriptures teach us that what exists in a woman's womb is categorically human and therefore to be protected as a human. When Mary was very early in her pregnancy, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth who was then six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And as soon as Mary, who was just just pregnant from the Holy Spirit, as soon as Mary comes in to see Elizabeth, Elizabeth says that her baby leaps for joy in her womb. Okay, And then Elizabeth says, why why do I deserve the mother of my Lord? She calls the baby in her, my Lord. Okay, so make of that what you will. Um, but my job as the proclaimer of the unchanging truths of the scriptures is to teach what the scriptures teach, that from the moment of conception, a human exists in the womb of a woman. And this commandment teaches us to uphold his or her life and never to destroy it. And that's why we must always, always speak this. We must always uphold this because definitions matter. Definitions matter. The only reason that that peculiar institution of slavery 
of Southern slavery existed for so long is because as long as the black man standing in front of you was a brute or chattel, then you can do anything you wanted with him. But the foundations of slavery begin to crack and crumble when we begin to define that man as a man. And so definitions matter supremely. Now, um, human beings are precious, therefore, in God's sight. Now, I know I'm going to move on to other things here shortly. Um, But let me say, I know this is a painful thing to say for some people. But don't drown. Don't drown. Just wait. Stay with me. There is good news. Okay. Now, second, not only must we uphold life in its beginnings, we must uphold life in its middle. Um, And by middle, I mean everything between birth and death. And this is the part of the commandment which basically I can just rest. Uh, I don't have to call up any powers of persuasion because we all agree. Let's not kill each other. We live in a civil society. Let's not kill each other. Um, This is something that we all agree on. Now, someone in the or someone here might ask this at this question, or might ask this question at this point. Does that mean? Does this commandment mean that we are not allowed as a society to endorse capital punishment? Now, um, I think you can look at the scriptures and argue two ways on that. I'm not going to come down on a position there, um, but I do know that you can't use this commandment to argue for it because it says you shall not murder. And then it goes on in the same chapter, Exodus chapter 20, to talk about um, the kinds of crimes that are punishable by capital punishment, but, not to get too complicated, the two words for that in the Hebrew are different words. Murder and dying by capital punishment, two different words, okay? So whatever arguments you use for that, that's fine, but you, you can't use this one. The same thing goes for war. If we say you shall not murder, does that mean we can't go to war and defend our ideals and our nations and that sort of thing? Uh, Because war involves killing. And the answer is, you could argue that from the scriptures. You could argue it both ways. But you can't use this text. Because even in Exodus, God leads his people into different lands and leads them into war. Okay, so God does not contradict himself. This is clearly a different issue, okay? So he's talking about, in this commandment, you shall not take the life of another person in, uh, in ordinary life, okay? So that's what this commandment is about. Okay, so beginning and middle, and now we must uphold and protect life in its end. This means that suicide, of course, is forbidden, um, and unfortunately, suicide has um, come to us, has begun, I, I don't know how long it's been like this, but we, we get the sense like it's this unforgivable sin. I, I don't know where that comes from, except <clears throat> that, except, and, and all I have to say is, it's not. It, we, we say it's the unforgivable sin or a unforgivable sin because you, you die without the chance of having, uh, without a chance to repent for that sin and receive forgiveness. But guys, if we could enumerate all, all the sins and the unrepented sins that we die with, like, okay, we, we are all going to die with a huge list, 
of sins that we perhaps didn't even know about, and yet God's mercy covers that. And so, um, and so we must know that. Um, now, um, I've got to say that with the release of this film that has just come out called Me Before You, it promotes this uh, view of assisted suicide that is like the ultimate act of love and caring and kindness. And um, I have to say, this is a blatant violation of this command of God. But, someone objects, how could it be wrong to deliberately end your life when you know that it's only going to consist of suffering and pain and um, and a burden for your family. And I don't know the answer to that except to say that Jesus's life is set before us for our imitation and he embraced suffering and he did not end his own life. He embraced it. So did the apostle Paul. So did the apostle Peter. So did the apostle James and all the apostles, all the churches in the early, uh, they embraced suffering. And so All I know is, as long as you draw breath, God has redemptive work to do through you in this world. And we have not been given the freedom to cut that short. That's all I know. Okay, so that's what the commandment means. To protect and uphold life in its beginning, its middle, and its end. But I don't want to move on quite yet because... To me, all that I've said so far is just so much information and trying to apply it here. Um, But to me, the better question is, why? Why is this so precious to God? Why is human life, according to the scriptures, of so much worth? And if we look through the Bible, the answer is simple. Genesis 1 bears witness to the fact that God made all things and then only one thing did he say bears his likeness and image, and that is you and me, humanity. He made humanity in his own image and according to his likeness. And to God, he did not. He decided not to give anything else in all creation, no matter how beautiful, no matter how majestic, it is only us. He did not give the angels his image. The angels, those ministering spirits that fly before the throne of God, crying out to one another, holy, 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 so loud that the foundations shake. He didn't give them his image. Every time an angel shows up in the scriptures to a human being, the human being falls down as if dead. He did not give his image to so awful, so terrifying, so glorious and so majestic a being. He did not endow the created order with his image. Though any of us could stand before majestic mountains and feel awe, Though we can look at the stars in the sky and feel like we are so tiny as to be insignificant, even though we could be drawn into wonder by all of these things, nowhere does it say that God created the created order to bear his image. But God reached down into the dirt and he formed a man and he breathed his spirit into him and this person bears the image of God. God put his spirit, his image into the weakest 
of containers. And in doing so, he crowned the human being with glory and honor. More glory and more honor than the angels. More glory and more honor than the created order. And we know this without even being told, don't we? we uh, all you have to do is look at a newborn child. You, and we're mesmerized. Something about it captures us. I mean, I, I have walked for miles and miles in the Canadian Rocky Mountains, and I have, I have been silenced by its beauty. I have seen in, that, in, in the midst of that rivers that were so blue, they almost looked like they couldn't be real. I have seen the stars look so close under the darkest cover, and you feel like you could reach out and grab them and put in your pocket or rearrange them. It just, and none of that even has the hundredth bit of awe that came to me when I held each of my newborn children in my hands. And you know this. You, we all know this. There's something about seeing something created in the image of God that draws us to worship. It's magnificent. And we can see how valuable this image is to God because his whole redemptive plan hinges on the restoration of his image in his people. His whole redemptive plan from the calling of Abraham to the choosing of Israel, from the thunder at Sinai to him leading his people into the promised land, from the glory of the era of the kings to the blistering judgments of the prophets, from the exile of his people into Babylon and Assyria, to their homecoming and return and the rebuilding of the temple, from the arrival of Jesus from the womb of a virgin to his betrayal and death, from his glorious resurrection and ascension to the formation of his church and the pouring out of his spirit. That whole story is aimed, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, at restoring us into the image of his son, the true image of God. That is why it is so potent to him. That is why it is so valuable to him. And that's why he says to, and communicates to his people, uphold this, uphold life. See it as precious and valuable as I do. So that's the commandment. You shall not murder. Now, secondly, what are the implications of this? Now, so far, even with all of my gesticulating, I have only covered a very small portion of us with this commandment. <clears throat> Statistically speaking, most people will never murder another person, but that's not the end of the story. There are only a few texts that our Lord Jesus takes up and comments upon during his ministry on earth. Maybe he commented on the whole Old Testament, but we only have records of a few. And this commandment happens to be one of them. So let's listen to what he has to say from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, 
will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, let me point out first that Jesus does not say anger and murder are the same thing. I've, I've had a lot of, I don't know if you've ever sat through a sermon or read a book about this, and, and the person is just trying so hard. I don't know if it's because it's so rhetorically juicy and the implications are wonderful, but like, anger is murder. Okay, I never really felt it, because it's not. It's not. He doesn't say that here. It's related, but it's not murder, okay? He says, notice, that you shall not murder... And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So if you murder, punishment, liable to judgment. Then he says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry is liable to judgment. Therefore, it's not the same thing, but anger merits the same punishment as murder. That's what he's trying to say. Now, if you go to Minnesota, you go to Itasca State Park, Anybody from Minnesota? Am I saying that right? I don't even know. Itasca. Yeah, Itasca State Park. All right. Um, you'll know that it's not, that the lake there is not that much beautiful, more beautiful than any other lake you've ever seen. But its one claim to fame is that it is the headwaters of the Mississippi River. And if you've ever seen the Mississippi River, especially here down south, you know that it's it's very wide and it's very deep, so wide and so deep that passenger ferries, huge steamships go on it and tugboats and cargo ships. And I mean, it's huge. You could, you could die in it easily. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, <laughs> um, but if you go up to Minnesota to Lake Atasca, whatever, um, the headwaters of the Mississippi aren't probably about 25, 30 feet wide. And you could walk across it without even getting your knees wet. It's amazing the difference uh, between the source and what happens later. Now, I think this is what Jesus is teaching us. Namely, that murder and anger are not the same thing, but they are related to one another in the sense that anger is the headwaters of murder. So let anger flow long enough, let it draw enough strength and depth from all these contributing tributaries. Eventually, it will cut its way through the land with such power that murder will inevitably result. I think that's what he's saying. So Jesus says, if we're going to keep ourselves from murder, we must also keep ourselves from anger. We must keep ourselves from insulting another person. He says, um, anyone who insults his brother will be liable to judgment. And the, the literal word there is raka, which doesn't mean anything to us, but to them, in that culture, it was a term of derision. It was a word that you used when you felt superior to someone else. It was an insult meant to keep them beneath you. It was an expression that grows out of pride. And so our modern equivalents might be something like idiot or moron, something like that. Something, something meant to keep them down and us elevated. He says, um, not only that, we must, we must not say to someone, you fool, which doesn't simply mean to avoid mouthing those words. It means that we must uphold the commandment by avoiding an expression that grows out of contempt or hatred 
of somebody else. It's a wish, this particular one, is a wish for the erasure of someone else from existence. So we've got one that's intended to keep people down, words from our mouth, pride. And we've got another that's meant, I am, I am in such contempt of you, I wish you didn't even exist. That's what these two things are saying. And so consider what he's saying. We all agree that murder is a high crime punishable by death. Um, and according to Jesus, hellfire. But Jesus says that when we insult another person in exasperation, when we call them a term of contempt, when we have expressed our anger in that way, we have done enough to earn the fire of hell. Pardon me for the crude phrase. <laughs> I know we don't like to hear it, but this, these are Jesus' words. He says, yeah, murder. But anyone who even says moron, idiot, you fool, same punishment. Now, that should get our attention. So I've talked about the actual words that come out of our mouths, but the words represent an internal disposition. And that's the first thing that Jesus says. He says, whoever's angry with his brother. So let's, talk, let's take a moment and talk about what anger is. Anger, as far as I can tell, is an emotional reaction to the violation of a goal, a value, or an expectation. Okay, now notice, that's a neutral definition. It's, a, it's a, an emotional reaction that responds to the violation of a goal or an expectation or a value. That means there can be good anger. Um, there, <laughs> there can be righteous anger. Now, most of our anger... If you're anything like me, most of your anger does not fall under that category. Um, because like when I get home at the end of the day, you know, long day, I'm tired. I've been using my brain and my body a lot at work. And um, I want to go in and I expect my children to be quiet and to serve me. <laughs> oh, dear father, put up thy feet. Let me rub them. <laughs> Here's a cold beverage. <laughs> but in reality, um, I come home and they're loud because they, they want to see me and they're excited and they have a hundred demands for my attention because they want their father to see what they've been doing. And, and unfortunately, um, this comes at a cost to them because my expectation is violated. Anger starts to boil. And so most of my anger comes from the violation of goals, uh, values, and expectations that are all rooted in selfishness and self-centeredness. Now, we're not going to have time to go into that. I've got some questions for you. You can uh, explore some of that on your own. Now, I must hasten to add what I mentioned already, that anger, when it when it rises in violation or in response to the violation of a good value, a righteous goal, a good expectation, this is a good thing, okay? If I'm walking down the street with my children and I value safety and protection for my children and somebody walks up and deliberately knocks them all to the ground, I am right to get angry. That, you, you may not do that. 
And as a father, I think, I think if anybody saw a father that was like, oh, well, you know, he was probably just mad, you know. He was probably, no, get angry. Okay. So uh, righteous anger is good. I mean, we have, I mean, God himself gets angry because people trample his supreme goal of being glorified among the nations. I mean, we've been considering the Ten Commandments. If those aren't his goals, values, and expectations for his people, I don't know what are. And we continually violate them, both inside the church and outside the church. And so he is angry for that reason. And he ought to be, because these are good values, good goals, and good expectations. We even have Paul saying, be angry and do not sin. So anger, anger can be a good thing, which is why God gave it to us. But I think I can safely say that most of the anger I experienced does not fall into that category. Now, I've observed, let's set that aside. I've observed unrighteous anger basically falls into two categories. There's hot anger and then there's cold anger. Let's look at both of those. Hot anger. The biblical word for this is wrath. When a goal or a value or expectation is violated, some of us have the reaction of yelling and screaming to vent our anger through our bodies and our mouths. And this, as you know, if you've ever received something like this, is devastating to the people who receive it. Now, I've recently been reading the narrative life uh, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, and I've been powerfully moved by this. Some of you probably read it in high school. Um, if you don't know, Frederick Douglass was a slave in the antebellum South who eventually got his freedom and led to a powerful, and then ended up leading a powerful abolitionist movement. But it just so happened that one day this week, as I was pondering all this stuff about anger, and I was reading Frederick Douglass, everything came together. Everything converged that I was considering. So, I came to one of these numerous passages in the book where he describes with painful eloquence a whipping that occurred from his master to him. And how when the master laid the cow skin across his back, the place immediately swelled up to the size of his pinky finger. And he continued the whipping until it cut down into the subcutaneous flesh and drew the deep red blood out. Now the scene just described as a horror in and of itself. But as I read it, everything I was thinking about anger merged with this image. When wrath pours out of my mouth or out of my eyes, this is the kind of damage it is doing to the heart and the soul of the person who is receiving it. And the horror I experienced when I when I could see this body being lashed out of, out of systemic anger, I all of a sudden transferred to the hearts and souls who received the lashes of my tongue. And Jesus says, for this, you are liable to the hell of fire. But there's also cold anger. The biblical word for this is bitterness or resentment. So if hot anger seeks to murder the other person through outright aggression, cold anger, bitterness, resentment, seeks to murder the other through starvation. When my goals or values or expectations are violated, one response can be that I simply cut you off 
so that you do not receive all the love and the care and the affection that I rightly owe you. So people who are given to this kind of anger may add the additional sin to the ledger that this anger feels more righteous than the hot anger. Because you're not getting crazy, you're not outwardly angry, and so add an element to pride to this one. It's more dignified, you know, it's more refined, but the resenter is just as liable to the hell of fire as the yeller. And you may not be whipping them and drawing blood, but you have decided to cut off all supplies to them until you can see nothing but bones under their skin. And they're on the verge of starving to death, laying there, just begging you for a crumb. Either way, the end is the same. And the punishment is the same. So now, when we hear, you shall not murder... I think we understand at least much of its full weight and its implications. Not only are we to uphold life by protecting physical human life in all of its forms, in the beginning, in the middle, and the end, but we must protect the life of the heart and the soul by refraining from anger. And anyone who murders is liable to judgment. And anyone who just dabbles in the headwaters called anger is liable to to judgment as well. Now, the question that is begging for an answer in all of this, as I've been laying it down, is, is there any hope for people like us? I don't think I've missed anyone. I think, I think we're all alike right now. There may be only a few murderers in our population, but which of us has never lashed out in hot anger or retreated in cold anger? Which of us has never called someone else a term of derision? Which of us has never splashed around in the headwaters of that mighty and murderous river? In that case, we are all liable to judgment. And it is over our transgression of this command that God is angry. And it is a pure and righteous and good anger. God's values are just and good. And he intends that those who bear his image should live lives of absolute flourishing and obedience to his will. And yet we flout his values, ignore his expectations, and run roughshod right over his goals. And we do this daily, if not hourly. And if that's true, how great must the storehouse of God's anger be? And so for all our murderous iniquity, we have merited for ourselves the hell of fire, an eternal agony in which we come into vital and unceasing contact with the wrath of God. But there is good news. Jesus Christ came to interpose himself between sinners like you and me and the wrath of God. On the night before his crucifixion, he pleaded with his father, Father, let this cup pass from me. What cup? What is he talking about? 
We find out in Psalm 75, verse 8, he says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to its dregs. We get a little bit more in Revelation chapter 14. The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And it says in the psalm that that the wicked shall drain that cup down to its very dregs. And when Jesus saw what lay ahead of him, he saw that cup, the full storehouse of, the, of God's anger and wrath against the trans, transgression of his values, of his goals, of his expectations, of his law. He saw all of that and he knew it was meant for him. And so Jesus Christ, out of love, for you and for me. In his atoning death, drank the full cup of God's wrath and anger down to its dregs. And his body and his soul convulsed with the powerful poison. And he died, murdered for murderers. Now, It may be that among us is someone who has committed the act of murder. I don't know. Maybe nobody knows. Do you think that your sin is beyond the covering of the blood of Jesus? The Apostle Paul, before he was a Christian, was a systematic murderer of Christians. And Jesus took hold of him. And do you know why? Well, Paul tells us why. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He took a systematic murderer and brought him into his kingdom, forgave all of his sins, made him an apostle so that you and I could see that God goes all the way to the worst kind of sinner. And he says, come into my kingdom. And he put that on display for us to see. You've got to know that God's mercy and forgiveness reaches even to those who have taken the life of another But if you insist on lashing yourself in payment for your own sins, you will find that there is never enough blood that you can draw to wipe the stain clean from your soul. But one drop of the blood of Jesus is enough to wash you as white as snow, as we just sang. What what are you waiting for? (laughs) You must believe it. You must run to him for your safety. But also, for those of us who have whipped another person with our words, with our eyes, and the cause, and we have caused the blood to run in their souls, for those of us who have grown cold with resentment and cut off those who rightly expect our love and our kindness and our attention, for all of us, we must also repent. We must also flee to the blood of Jesus for our forgiveness. And when we do, we find that we have the power of the Spirit to do what Paul says to do with our anger, put it away. 
That's the application. He says, wrath, anger, malice, all of these things, you must put them away. He's not saying this to people outside of the church. He's saying this to Christians. Put it away. Because you are redeemed and because you have the spirit of God within you, cultivating the fruit of righteousness, you now have the power to choose a different way. The law, you shall not murder, is upheld in Christ's command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That and that, as redeemed citizens of heaven, is our goal, our expectation, and our supreme value, to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so the promise is this, and I'll be done. One day our Lord shall return. He shall tear open the sky, and he will return, and we will all be resurrected, and we will be ushered into the eternal kingdom of God and feasted at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And any man who has killed another, provided he has run to Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, will meet again the person whose life he has cut off. And they shall embrace as brothers under the pardoning blood of Jesus. There will be no more hatred. There will be no more anger. There will be no more strife. But the reconciling grace and mercy of God will bring them together. And let us not forget the mothers. If any mother has ended her child's life, the promise for those who have fled to Jesus for their safety is that they shall again meet their child. She shall embrace the one she never knew. And the one she never knew shall embrace her. And there will be no more anger or resentment, but only everlasting peace. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, we come to this table to eat a meal in anticipation of that eternal feast. This is a table of reconciliation. This is a table which is our most powerful symbol of peace. When Jesus wants to talk about um, how we deal with each other's anger, how we deal with strife and breaking of relationship, he says in the rest of the passage in Matthew chapter 5 that the answer is reconciliation. You must go to your brother. You must go to your sister. You must be reconciled. Now, in that passage, it says that if you are at the altar and there you remember that someone has something against you, leave your offering there and go. Make it right with them and then return to give your offering. Now, this is not an altar of sacrifice. This is the table of our Lord. That means that if there is something between you and another person, if anger has divided you, if reconciliation needs to occur, the very worst thing you could do is to avoid coming to this table because this table is the ultimate symbol that we have for all the world that we are reconciled and that we are being reconciled and that we are all sinners equal in the need of grace. And so don't avoid the table if you have somebody in this room with whom there is strife or division or backbiting or anger. Come with them to the table. 
and taste what the reconciliation of God tastes like. It is for us. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will come and experience it together. Well, our Father, some heavy words have been spoken. I hope I've been faithful to them. But I pray for our people now. That you would lift their eyes to Jesus, their high priest, who sits at your right hand, never ceasing to make intercession for you, for us. And I pray for those who are feeling the cut of the spirit in their heart, that you would awaken them and that you would make this sacrament a converting sacrament for them. Oh, Father, we want to see you bring sons and daughters into the kingdom. So help us. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this is a meal for all God's children who have fled for safety from the wrath of God to the city of refuge whose name is Jesus. And so you are all invited to come.